And that brings us to chapter three. When I attained the age of 17, my parents resolved that I should become a student at the University of Ingolstadt. I had hitherto attended the schools of Geneva, but my father thought it necessary for the completion of my education that I should be made acquainted with other customs than those of my native country. My departure was therefore fixed at an early date, but before the day resolved upon could arrive, the first misfortune of my life occurred in omen, as it were, of my future misery. Elizabeth had caught scarlet fever. Her illness was severe, and she was in the greatest danger. During her illness, many arguments had been urged to persuade my mother to refrain from attending on her. She had at first yielded to our entreaties, but when she heard that the life of her favorite was menaced, she could no longer control her anxiety. She attended her sickbed. Her watchful attentions triumphed over malignity of the distemper. Elizabeth was saved, but the consequences of this imprudence were fatal to her preserver. On the third day, my mother sickened. Her fever was accompanied by the most alarming symptoms, and the looks of her medical attendants prognosticated the worst event. On her deathbed, the fortitude and benignity of the best of women did not desert her. She joined hands of Elizabeth and myself. My children, she said, my firmest hope of future happiness were placed upon the prospect of your union. This is ex expectation will now be the consolation of your father. Elizabeth, my love, you must supply my place to my younger children. Alas, I regret that I am taken from you and happy that I, as beloved as I have been, it is not hard to quit you all. But these are not thoughts befitting me. I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death and will indulge in a hope of meeting you in another world. She died calmly and her countenance expressed affection even in death. I need not describe the feelings of those whose dearest ties are rent by this most irreparable evil, the void that presents itself to the soul, and the despair that is exhibited on its countenance. It is so long before my mind can persuade itself that she who saw every day and whose very existence appeared as part of our own can have departed forever, that the brightness of a beloved eye can have been extinguished and the sound of a voice so familiar and dear to the ear can be hushed, never more to be heard. These are reflections of first days, but when the lapse of time proves the reality of the evil, then the actual bitterness of grief commences. Yet from whom has not the rude hand rent away some dear connection? And why should I describe sorrow which all have felt and must feel? The time at length arrives when grief is rather an indulgence and a necessity, and a smile that plays upon the lips, although it may be deemed sacrilege, is not banished. My mother was dead, but she was still had duties to perform, which we ought to perform, and we had to continue with the rest and to learn to think for ourselves fortunate, while one remains who the spoiler has not seized. My departure for Ingolstadt, which had been deferred by these events, was now determined upon. I obtained from my father a respite of some weeks, it appeared to me a sacrilege so soon to leave the repose akin to the death of a house of mourning and to rush into the thick of life. I was new to sorrow, but it did not less alarm me. I was unwilling to quit the sight of those that remained to me, and above all, I desired to see my sweet Elizabeth to some degree consoled. She indeed veiled her grief and strove to act the comforter to us all. She looked steadily on life and assumed its duties with courage and zeal. She devoted herself to those she had been taught to call her uncle and cousins. Never was so enchanting as she at this time. When she recalled the sunshine of her smiles and spent them upon us, she forgot even her own regret in the endeavors to make us forget. The day of my departure at length arrived. 
Clerval spent the evening with us. He had endeavored to persuade my father to permit him to accompany me and to become my fellow student, but in vain. My father was a narrow-minded traitor and saw in idleness and ruin the aspirations and ambitions of his son. Henry fell deeply for the misfortune of being debarred from a liberal education. He said little, but when he spoke, I read in his kindling eye, in his animated glance, a restrained but firm resolve not to be chained to the miserable deaths of commerce. We sat late. We could not tear ourselves away from each other, nor persuade ourselves to say the word farewell. It was said we were tired under the pretense of seeking repose, each fancying the other was deceived. But when at morning's dawn I descended to the carriage which to convey me away, they were all there. My father again to bless me, Clairval to press my hand once more, and my Elizabeth to renew her entreaties that I would write often, and to bestow the last feminine attentions on her playmate and friend. I threw myself into the chase that was to convey me away, and indulged in the most melancholy reflections. I, who had been ever surrounded by amiable companions, continually engaged in endeavoring to bestow mutual pleasure, I was now alone. In the university, whither I was going, I must form my own friends and be my own protector. My life had hitherto been remarkably secluded and domestic. This had given me invincible repugnance to new countenances. I left my brothers, Elizabeth and Clairval, and these were the old familiar faces, but I believed myself totally unfitted for the company of strangers. Such were my reflections that I commenced my journey, but as I proceeded, my spirits and hopes rose. I ardently desired the acquisition of knowledge. I had often, when at home, thought it had to remain during my youth cooped up in one place and had longer to enter the world and take my station among other human beings. Now my desires were complied with, and it would, indeed, have been folly to repent. I had sufficient leisure for these and many other reflections during the journey to Ingolstadt, which was long and fatiguing. At length, the high white steeple of the town met my eyes and alighted and was conducted to my solitary parliament to spend the evening as I pleased. The next morning, I delivered my letters of introduction and paid a visit to one of my principal professors. Chance, or rather evil influence, the angel of destruction, asserted omnipotent sway over me from the moment I turned my reluctant steps from my father's door, led me first to Mr. Kremp, the professor of natural philosophy. He was an uncouth man, but deeply imbued in the secrets of his science. He asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of sciences appertaining to natural philosophy. I replied carelessly, in part in contempt, mentioned my names of my alchemists as the principal authors I'd studied. The professor stared. Have you, he said, really spent your time in studying such nonsense? I replied in the affirmative, every minute. Continued Mr. Cuppy with once, every instant that you waste on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You've burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, in what desert land have you lived, where no one was kind enough to inform you that those fancies, which you so greedily imbibed, are a thousand years old, as musty as they are ancient? I little expected, in this enlightened and scientific age, to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Parcellus. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. So saying, he stepped aside and wrote down a list of several books of treating of natural philosophy, which he desired me to procure, and dismissed me. After mentioning in the beginning of the following week, he intended to commence a course of lectures upon natural philosophy and its greater relations, and that M. Waldman, a fellow professor, would lecture upon chemistry the alternate days he omitted. 
I returned home, not disappointed, for as I said, I have long considered those authors who the professor reprobated, but I had returned not at all to inclined to recur these studies in any shape. Mr. Krempe was a squat little man with a gruff voice and a repulsive countenance. The teacher, therefore, did not predispose me in favor of his pursuits. In rather too philosophical and connected a strain, perhaps, I was given an account of the conclusions I had come to concerning them in my early years. As a child, I had not been content with the results promised by the modern professors of natural science. With a confusion of ideas only accounted for by my extreme youth, and by want of a guide on such matters, I had retrowed the steps of knowledge among the paths of time, and exchanged the discoveries of recent inquirers for the dreams of forgotten alchemists. Besides, I had a contempt for the uses of modern natural philosophy. It was very different when the masters of science sought immortality and power. Such views, though futile, were grand, but now the scene was changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for the realities of little worth. Such were my reflections during the first two or three days of residence at Ingolstadt, which were chiefly spent becoming acquainted in localities with the principal residence in my new abode. But as the ensuing weeks commenced, I thought of the information which Mr. M. Krempe had given me concerning the lectures, and I thought I should not consent to go and hear that conceited little fellow deliver sentences of a pulpit. I recollected that he said of Mr. Waldman, who I had never seen, that he had been here to out of town. Well, partly out of curiosity and partly from idleness, I went to the lecturing room, which Mr. Waldman entered shortly thereafter. The professor was very unlike his colleague. He appeared about 50 years of age, but with an aspect expressive of the greatest benevolence. A few gray hairs covered his temples, but those at the back of his head were nearly black. The person was different, a man of learning, pronouncing with fever names of the most distinguished discoverers. He then took a cursory view of the present state of the science and explained many of its elemental terms. After having made a few preparatory experiments, he concluded with a panegyric upon modern chemistry, the terms of which I shall never forget. The ancient teachers of this science, said he, promised impossibilities and performed nothing. The modern masters promise very little. They know that metals cannot be transmuted and that the elixir of life is as a chimera. But these philosophers, whose hands only made to dabble in dirt, and their eyes to pore over the microscope or crucible, have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend to the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. Such were the professor's words and they rather left me with such words of fate announced to destroy me. As he went on, I felt as if my soul were grappling with a palpable energy. One by one, the various keys were touched, which deformed the mechanism of my being. Chord after chord was sounded, and soon my mind was filled with one thought, one conception, one purpose. So much had been done, exclaimed the soul of Frankenstein. More, far more, I will achieve." Treading in the steps already marked, I will pioneer a new way, explore unknown powers, and so unfold the world of the deepest mysteries of creation. 
I closed not my eyes that night. My internal being was in a state of insurrection and turmoil. I felt the world would thence arise, but I had no power to produce it. By degrees after the morning's dawn, sleep came. I awoke, and my yesternight's thoughts were a dream. There only remained a resolution to return to my ancient studies and devote myself to a science for which I believed myself to possess a natural talent. On the same day, I paid Mr. Waldman a visit. His manners in a private were more mild and attractive than in public, for there was a certain dignity in his mien towards the lecture, which his own house was replaced with a great affability and kindness. I gave him pretty nearly the same account of my former pursuits as I'd given his fellow professor. He heard with attention the little narration concerning my studies and smiled at the names of Cornelius Agrippia and Paracelius, but without the contempt that Mr. Crippe had exhibited. He said, these were men to whom indefatigable zeal modern philosophers were indebted for most of the foundations of the knowledge. They had left to us an easier task to give new names and range in connected classifications the facts which they had to great degree been the instruments of bringing to light the labors of men of genius. However erroneously directed, scarcely ever fail in ultimately turning to the solid advantage of mankind." I listened to his statement, which was delivered without any presumption or affectation, and then added that his lecture had removed my prejudice against modern chemists. I expressed myself in measured terms with the modesty and deference due a young youth to his instructor, without letting escape in experience in life would have made me ashamed of any enthusiasm which had stimulated my intended labors. I requested his advice concerning the books I ought to procure. I am happy, said Mr. Waldeman, to gain a disciple. And if your application equals your ability, I have no doubt of your success. Chemistry is the branch of natural philosophy in which the greatest improvements have and may be made. It is on the account that I have made my particular study. But at the same time, I have not neglected the other branches of science. A man would make very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If he wished to really become a man of science, not merely a petty experimentalist, I should advise you to apply every branch of natural philosophy, including mathematics. He then took me to his laboratory and explained to me his various machines, instructing me as to what I ought to procure, and promising me to use his own when I should have advanced far enough in the science not to derange their mechanism. He also gave me a list of books which I had requested, and I took my leave. Thus ended a memorable day. It decided my future destiny. And that's where I'm going to finish for the night. Um... If anyone wants to <laughs> provide any feedback, feel free. And uh, thanks for listening. Stop recording.